I mean, I, I think in, in, a, in a nutshell, the idea of, of being grounded in a place is something that both consciously and unconsciously I've carried forward as a value from both my parents, really, um, that I'm trying to instill in my kids. You know, so it's important to me, and I have done, uh, that I take uh, my children to St. Paul. Uh, we've, we've had various trips out there in the winter, in the summer. We spend a week, we spend two weeks, one time we spent a month. Um, and I very consciously try to get them to, you know, have these deep associations. Today, I have Dr. Wakefield with me for our podcast interview. Dr. Wakefield, how are you? Fine, thank you. Good Good. to be talking to you, PK. Good. How has the quarantine been so far for you with COVID-19? Well, uh, it's a a very mixed bag. I take it that such a statement is not unusual as I read the news of everyone else's uh, stories. on on the worst side of things, one worries about one's own mortality, catching the disease, dying, leaving my kids as orphans. That's kind of the worst case scenario. So I'm trying very hard to avoid that. On the other side, you know, this is like the, the profane and the sublime. Um, you know, yesterday my kids got in a fist fight over the Nintendo Switch, which they're supposedly playing together. But my daughter took the habit of bringing it into her bedroom at night and hiding it while she slept into noon and that meant my son couldn't play it (laughs) in the morning so that that's the other side of the trivialities of these things so in the meantime I'm teaching classes online and uh and trying to keep things together okay yeah it's it's a new new we all had to get we all had to get used to uh Dr. Wakefield uh, where is home for you and where did you grow up well this is a very interesting question uh Prasanna I mean I wanted to explain uh, for a broader audience that you and I have been working in class together on on The Great Gatsby, and um, in some ways, your question evokes some images of that, so I'll probably be referring a bit to that. But, um, I mean, one one of the things about F. Scott Fitzgerald, the author of of The Great Gatsby, is that, you know, he himself was restless. That word, as we noted in class, you know, occurs dozens of times across the novel, even though he was very deliberate about not repeating words and, and using his language very carefully. So I take it that, that he was conveying something with that. Uh, that is to say, um, I learned uh, at one of the museums I visited that he never lived as an adult in any one place for, for more than a, about a year and three or four months at a time. So he was constantly moving and, and even that longer than a year was quite rare. He would live in hotels and go all around. Um, so, you know, I reflect on that because I would say that I have many homes. Um, you know, obviously I have a home here near Emory University in Decatur, Georgia. That's the home where my children have grown up and where they feel most at home. You know, so that, 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 that witnessing of their grounding in this particular place, in this community, seeing how they can find their way around and they understand the geography and the community supports that they have and the different opportunities that in some ways makes this home. Um, on the other hand, you know, I've moved around a lot and, and that 
notion, which, you know, I take from Fitzgerald is quite American of, of, you know, being treated economically as geographically free. You know, you get a job in Los Angeles, you go there, you get a job in Atlanta, you go there. So, you know, that has happened to me. Um, I grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota, hence another connection with the Great Gatsby, because that's where Fitzgerald grew up. Um, but then I went to my first year of college in Chicago. That didn't go very well. Uh, I went back to St. Paul. Then I traveled in Europe um, on, a, on a sort of student exchange. Uh, then I did my graduate school at Brown in Providence, Rhode Island. I then uh, moved to Washington, D.C., and then back to New England. I lived in Boston for two years and worked there, and then back to D.C., so back and forth, up and down the East Coast. Um, and, you know, in, in some ways, I feel at home in a number of those places. It, it, you know, it's sort of a, a sort of disjunctive uh, home. You know, so if I go back to Washington, D.C., I lived there for 15 years, you know, over, over a, a, a series of different stints that I did there. But, you know, I clearly have deep associations. I remember my way around. I know the names of streets. I have favorite places I used to go. I see how they've changed. Uh, you know, I, I want to show my children that place. Um, similar things could be said about Providence and, and Boston. Um, my wife is French. So we spend a month in France every year, and there's ways in which I feel deeply grounded in the small village, a thousand inhabitants in France. So that's home in a way for me as well. Uh, but I would, you know, so all of those places have been home and in some sense remain home. There's a way in which I don't feel rooted anywhere except maybe this strange kind of magnet, magnetic pole I feel to always go back to the Twin Cities. Uh, I, my sisters are there. I have four sisters. Uh, my parents have died. Uh, and I have some friends in the Twin Cities, but it's more than just visiting them that makes me feel at home. You know, it's a sense of the light in the sky and the clearness of the air and the smell of lakes and identifying a, a, a loon which is swimming on the lake. You know, all of these things that evoke these deep sort of experiences for me that I don't even remember specifically, but they make me feel like this is my place, you know? I don't know if you remember, there's a, there's a passage near the end of Gatsby that always makes me cry. You know, he's like, that was my snow in the, you know, in the Midwest. He traveled, the, the narrator, Nick, travels from Chicago to St. Paul in, in some of the last pages. But I certainly feel that sort of thing, you know? All those associations, the color, the, the intersections, the street names, there's nothing, you know, objectively magical about it, but having grown up there, I feel a need to sort of always check in there uh, and, and go back to that place. Long answer, but uh, <laughs> short answer, it's complicated, right? So It is very complicated. Thank you for that. Uh, from what I got, home is a moving, it moves along with you, and every place you've been, you left a little part of yourself, in a sense, there. And it's that familiarities that bring, it's like interweaved into your life as home, as a broader thing than just like one physical place. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, and I feel like a certain empowerment with being mm -hmm. able to feel at home and establish a home in a new place. Um, and also I feel like when you say I left part of myself there, I guess that's true, but I also took part of that place with me 
and I feel like I gave part of, I gave something to the place. So, you know, it's almost like I have an investment there. You know, when, when I, when I, you know, cycle on my bicycle through the city or I join an organization or, you know, I, I, I frequent certain restaurants or whatever I do, I feel like I'm contributing to the civic life of that place, which makes it alive and unique in a certain way. But then I can go back there and see how that investment has grown. That reminds me of, uh, I think, a biology term, like a symbiotic relationship. Really. Yeah. You, yeah. Like you, you invest into the city, the city invests into you. And yes. Yeah. So what did you, what did your parents do for a living? Uh, so my father was an elementary school teacher for about 30 years. Um, so he taught uh, grades four, five, and six. Uh, in the St. Paul public schools at various schools, all of which were within, you know, four or five miles of my house. Um, and then in his uh, early 60s, he, he retired from teaching. And um, he had had a, a series of different jobs during the summers because the nature of elementary school teaching was such that he didn't get paid during the summer months. So he would do different things, including one for several years, he was a a tour guide at a local brewery, which, you know, I was too young to fully participate, but maybe that's like, uh, I've inherited some <laughs> fondness for <laughs> beer from that. Um, but he also then later uh, started working in the summers at a, at a golf course, actually associated with the, um, the company 3M, uh, Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing, which is in the news today because it, among other things, they make, they make uh, face masks apparently. But, um, this was the company golf course. And then he became a manager there for another 20, 30 years. Um, well, 15, 20 years, that was his main job. He, he sort of continued that into his seventies. And, um, as also on the sidelight, he did, a, did a, a, a reporting job. He was very much into sports, especially winter sports. And he loved, uh, making sure that the high school kids got, you know, their names in the local newspaper. So he was a, a sports editor for one of these small free weekly newspapers uh, for another 10 or 15 years. So that's my father. Uh, my mother was, you know, our mother, she did all the work in the home. There were five siblings, uh, me and my four sisters. Um, and, you know, she had, she had been trained as a, as a clerk, as secretarial, and she worked a little while before getting married, but her main occupation was just running that house. And I don't know how she did it because I'm insane. With two children and we must have driven her crazy on various occasions but um yeah she she was always there cooking dinner every night cleaning the house um getting us to all the things we needed to go to um so that's what that's what she did she, she was also a volunteer I want to mention that uh, uh you know she volunteered through these various organizations especially contributing to children's hospitals and medical supplies and these sorts of things she also i think in a way my sister said this and it made me realize that it's true she became sort of a, a you know a, a, a an amateur historian an amateur historian of uh the area where we lived which is called the east side of saint paul she you know she was in touch with her high school friends and she knew everyone's history what they were doing what happened what their children did so she would always kind of fill us in. Oh, you remember that person was in your class and now he's married or, you know, his mother died or something like this. She was very uh, steeped in, in the community in that way. How was it living with four sisters? 
Oh my God. Um, <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I will admit now on record that, that I, I was, uh, I was a great annoyance to them <laughs> as I, I had the advantage of being the oldest. Okay. Um, and in some ways I, that I didn't realize then, but I would acknowledge now I, 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 I would, I, I was, um, the beneficiary of sexist attitudes, probably on the part of my father. He favored me on many occasions, either because I was the boy or because I was oldest or both. Um, I also, you know, learned early on how to torment my sisters and get them to do things for me or tease them or get them to scream. So when I say my mother had her hands full, um, I didn't say that, but I'm saying it now. Uh, <laughs> that's what I mean. <laughs> so we, we had, we had um, all kinds of little uh, familiar contests and, and squabbles that we would get into. Uh, but in general, you know, on a more serious note, um, I'm, I'm very deeply committed to feminism personally and in my academic work as far as I can be. Um, and I think, and I credit, uh, my, my sisters, my mother, my grandmothers, uh, especially for that, you know, because even as we were in this sort of, you know, uh, contentious relationship, my sisters and, and me, um, I, I think, um, I learned to respect them in, in, in sort of deep ways and always sort of think about them and how things that happened to me w might have been different for them, for example, just as a simple example. So it, it was all good, um, you know, and it's interesting in a large family, the way you become closer to some people than others. And that's certainly true for me and, and, and my sisters. Uh, I'm closer to some of them than others. They, they all still, live in the greater Twin Cities area, but they've all kind of moved to the suburbs of, of St. Paul. Okay. How about uh, you, can I ask you a question? So you, you could ask me questions many, as well. How many siblings do you have? You have a brother, I know. Is that- I have, I have a little brother, he's, I'm 21, he's 19. Uh, he's a sophomore at WashU right now. Oh yeah, okay. Yes. So how is it having a brother? Cause I never had one of those. <laughs> Uh, we fight, we fought a lot when we were a younger kids, a lot, a lot of uh, scratching. We, we, I remember one time we decided to fight just because we were bored. So we did like wrestling matches and then like after <laughs> 10 minutes, like, okay, let's take a break. And then we go back at it again. But, <laughs> and, uh, we fought a lot, but as the years grew, uh, we got apart from each other. But then when we went to college and we came back, especially right now, we're kind of closer with each other now hmm. we both matured mm -hmm. a lot we, we play video games we play football we we talk deep talks kind of stuff like that so mm -hmm. it's a growing relationship and i'm grateful i have him i have him so yeah 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 i mean you you spur me with that reflection i mean in another way so you kind of asked me about my childhood but i would say you know it it was it, it was I, my gratitude and my appreciation goes beyond words to think of the way my sisters, uh, particularly two of them, stepped up when my parents were elderly and needed care because I was not there. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, they provided everything. So, you know, there's a way in which that, that was um, a deep blessing. That's great to hear. Uh, what were you curious about as a child? Oh man, I remember reading that question in the materials you sent me. Um, 
it's hard it's hard for me to remember actually um i mean compared to other people even compared to like one of my sisters who seems always to remember our childhoods in ways that i do not but um i i don't have like a lot of really vivid memories from early childhood more when i get to high school but um i know i was really interested in sports and sort of winter sports and nordic sports i mentioned my father was really into that mm -hmm. so he influenced me uh, deeply there. I was also really interested at the time there would be these quirky little radio contests where there'd be like a, a quiz question and you had to do like research in the encyclopedia. And I remember my, my father and I did that a lot. Um, I was into physical fitness in a way. I think I, my father kind of influenced me there too. I would do like cross country skiing out in the backyard and I would like search out these, you know, co mail order companies from Maine, which I never, you know, in my imagination, Maine was a very Nordic kind of place. I'm not sure that's true, but, uh, you know, I would set up these challenges for myself and go out at night in the dark, in the snow, out in this area behind my house. So it was very kind of wild and undeveloped and, and just do these sort of physical contests, you know, imagining myself as, you know, some sort of Nordic soldier or something like this. So, uh, you know, in those ways, uh, I, I guess I was interested in that. At, at, at some point, I became quite interested in history. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I had a, a, a friend that I admired uh, deeply in high school who, who really turned me towards ancient history and, and uh, especially ancient Egyptian history. So that was a little bit later, not exactly my child, my adolescence, I would say. But that became a strong interest, which in some ways is, is where my, you know, my eventual specialization in ancient philosophy grew. Uh, from early interest in, in the ancient world. Um, I don't know. At some points, I remember being interested in art. I hated chorus. I hated singing. I didn't like science very much. Um, I had one really good math teacher in eighth grade, and then it all went downhill from there. What can I tell you? Uh, I don't know. I was also interested, I think, fairly early on, probably from like way too many hours of watching what was then, you know, broadcast television where they'd have these game shows and people would, would win trips. I was somehow fascinated by the idea of, of, of travel. Um, and, you know, my, at that point, my, my mother had, was the only one in the family who had taken a trip on a jet airplane. My father had taken some trips later on. I, I didn't get on an airplane until I was, I think, 19 years old. So I was fascinated by this idea of travel. Um, and, and, you know, I, I guess at some point I started conceiving the idea that I needed to, to leave, you know, St. Paul and I wanted to go see these places. Um, so that was always quite interesting to me. You mentioned a lot, Dale. Uh, in what ways do winter sports like the radio questions physical fitness imagining you like a nordic soldier your your idea of travel your history how all those come together now and what what do you do now as a professor at emory like what do you teach and how do you think those have influenced if they do influence what you do now or what you do in your free time as hobbies etc right right well that's an interesting question I mean, I'm, I'm still, you know, I, I, I'm still very physical uh, in terms of fitness and exercise. Now I've channeled everything and in, including my identity into the bicycle uh, <laughs> more than winter sports, which which don't get much play in Atlanta. But I mean, 
it's not just living in Atlanta. I, I what happened, I'll take a, a route back to your question, but um, in my senior year in college, I got the opportunity to, um, to get a grant to do an independent study in France. Um, and so I could define what I wanted to study. And because of my kind of interest in history, I worked it out that I wanted to study Romanesque architecture, which is largely cathedral and church architecture uh, that, that was built along, you know, these pilgrimage routes that, that ran through France and into northern Spain, roughly the period of like 900 through 12 or 1300 of the current era. One of the, re I mean, I, I was interested in history and I want to learn about that period of history and I was interested in the, in the, in the physical structures that I had seen pictures of, I wanted to understand them better. Um, but it also led me to uh, conceive that I could visit all these sites and follow these pilgrimage routes on my bicycle. So I did that. Uh, and that, that was quite formative for me. Um, but also, you know, by that point, I had uh, sort of channeled my, my interest in history into uh, philosophy for a coincidental reason. I, I went to the University of Chicago for one year to study Egyptology. I was as a freshman. Well, it didn't work out very well, and I gave up on Egyptology very quickly. Um, but when I went back to St. Paul to a, a, a local college there called Hamlin, the, 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 the department that was reading ancient text was the philosophy department. And so I started to read Plato. And I, I then, you know, in reading that, really sort of connected with the sort of questions and, and the problems and, and the the sort of uh, moral guidance or recommendations that I saw Plato making. I really, you know, it resonated with me and I wanted to understand it more deeply and study it more. So that kind of led me to this trajectory um, into graduate school. Um, so between those two kind of uh, stories that I've just told, you know, um, I think you know, my early interest in history that got channeled into Egyptology that then got channeled into the ancient world, that explains in some ways my, my current uh, teaching position because I got a PhD writing a dissertation on Plato and Aristotle. And, you know, now I'm a teacher and I incorporate a lot of those works into my current teaching. Of course, my father was a teacher. So mm -hmm. there's that dimension of it as well. Although, you know, he didn't teach at a college level. And, and there's kind of another part that I would fill into the story about my current college teaching. But then, you know, the, the, the interest in, in the historical world moving, you know, to the Romanesque era was shaped by that bicycle trip. And now, you know, a, a good part of my time is spent uh, on, a, on a bicycle getting exercise, you know, expressing the, that physical fitness side of my personality. And so, you know, I associate that also with that particular trip as kind of launching me as an adult to see the the freedom that the bicycle allowed me, and and um, it's grown into in, into the way I use it as my my uh, transportation uh, and recreation now. So, I think that's an answer to your question. No, that's a that's a great answer. So I have a follow up question to that. So you just described how your childhood experiences or childhood interests grew and evolved, and how you're expressing them right now. How do you? think how you're expressing them right now has changed or changed your perspective as a father, as a role of a dad to your children, or have you have have your childhood experiences with your own father impacted your relationship with your children today? 
mm. if there is a connection in that sense. Yeah, that that's a that's an interesting question. You know, I mean, I guess there's a way in which you know you you realize, despite your attempts to deny it, that you embody your father in some yeah. way. I think that's true of everyone. Uh, sometimes when I when I have a sort of impulsive reaction, usually when I'm upset in some ways, I I, I literally like tell myself, "Don't do what your father would do." <laughs> Um, but it, you know, that doesn't prevent me from actually doing it sometimes or like, you know, manifesting my father's influence in other ways, probably in other ways that are much more positive. Um, I mean, I, I think in, in a, in a nutshell, the idea of, of being grounded in a place is something that both consciously and unconsciously I've carried forward as a value from both my parents, really. Um, that I'm trying to instill in my kids, you know, so it's important to me and I have done I, that. I take uh, my children to St. Paul. Uh, we've, we've had various trips out there in the winter, in the summer, we spend a week, we spend two weeks, one time we spent a month. Um, and I very consciously try to get them to, you know, have these deep associations. Similarly, you know, my wife who is French, we take the kids to France and I, it, it's a similar motivation. It's not my place except as I've adopted it as an adult, but it's my wife's place and I want them to feel that deep heritage. I mean, what I didn't say is that uh, my my parents lived within a mile of their parents all the, okay. for their entire lives. Uh, and, and their parents lived within a mile of their parents, right? So, I mean, you know, Minnesota was founded in the 1860s at some point, in the late 19th century, I think, or very early 20th century, there were, you know, immigrants in the family coming from Germany and from, from Scandinavia, but they stayed, <laughs> not just in Minnesota, they stayed in the exact same houses, in the exact same neighborhoods. Um, and that was very powerful, you know, so for me, as I said, like conceiving this desire to travel, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously the one that's moved farthest away from, from my family and from that place. Um, and I think a lot about that. Uh, and I, you know, I want my children to see those very places, to see the houses where my grandmother was and the lake and walk around that lake. Uh, so, I, you know, I think in some ways I'm carrying that value forward from my father because that, you know, he, both my father and my mother, they, they knew those places, right? And I, I want my children to know those places as well. Um, so that, I mean, that, that would be one answer. And I think in general, I, I would say also that once I began teaching and really kind of reflecting on teaching and realizing, you know, my, you know, you don't realize it when you're in the middle of it, but at some point I realized my trajectory as a teacher, then I began to see the deep fulfilling nature of teaching as a calling. And I think in some ways then discovered something about my father that I didn't realize before. So I see that as, as you know, connecting me to him, maybe even, you know, uh, an unconscious manifestation of an influence on me. Why, why, why did you decide to teach college students instead of like high school? Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't decide any of this. Okay. <laughs> that's the thing to understand. Like each little turn in this path that got me here, it seems like completely coincidental, even on in <laughs> retrospect. Um, 
So, I mean, I was a graduate student nearing the end of my dissertation and my dissertation advisor said, you know, you really have to start thinking about going on the job market. And I had long been telling me, telling myself, you know, I'm just studying philosophy for its intrinsic value. You know, I'm, mm -hmm. you know, Socrates says, you know, the unexamined life is not worth living. I was like, that's <laughs> right. I'm going to keep examining questions and that's why I'm a philosopher and that's all I need to do. It doesn't matter, you know, if I'm poor, I'll just be like <laughs> Socrates and, and, and he did it. You know, I had this kind of starry-eyed view. Um, and then, you know, of course, I needed money somehow. And there were these opportunities, you know. So what, what actually happened was my dissertation advisor recommended my name to a college I'd never heard of. And they called me on the phone one day and, and said, you know, we're, we want you to apply for this job. So I did. And there I was. I was teaching at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. And you know, then it grew from there, right? So there, there was a long period, about 10, 10, 11 years where I had nothing but very temporary jobs. I call this, you know, academic migrancy. So mm. I, I got a job at Boston and then I got a job, uh, you know, at Babson and then I got a job in Washington, D.C. And then, I, you know, one in uh, Eastern Shore of Maryland, all over the place, kind of chasing you know, someone was on sabbatical, someone, you know, needed one class taught and so forth. Um, but, you know, all of that, you know, kind of led me to be committed to trying to teach, but it also gave me this really uh, valuable, as it turned out, a valuable experience of understanding the nature of universities and how they operate. Because I saw about 10 different colleges and universities up close and personal because I was working there and, and really got to know, you know, the difference between a small liberal arts college and how that's funded and what are the pressures and what are the faculty concerns. And then, you know, GW, GWU in, in Washington, D.C. is getting had about 15,000 students, a very different story. Uh, but I was involved with the faculty there, too, and kind of watching how that operated as an institution. Those sorts of skills served me when I, when I got to Atlanta. Uh, so your original question is why did I decide to be a college teacher? Well, they called me on the phone. They're like, do you want to do this? And I'm like, okay. But then I had to figure out what it meant. And, and that wasn't so easy. Uh, and then I kept kind of kicking the can down the line, getting these different jobs. And all of a sudden I saw, found myself like pretty knowledgeable about the whole sector of higher education and started really then to incorporate, you know, thinking about higher education and the nature of higher education into sort of teaching and, and uh, research that I was doing. So that's, that's the, the long story of that. But the basic answer is I never decided that. And look where I am now. I, I still want to know what I'm going to be when I grow up. So I like, I love that answer. I love it. Uh, this is going back to your parents. So most of your family stayed in St. Paul and were you the first one to leave St. Paul and like travel? extensively yes i think so um trying to think well one of my cousins who's now dead he was a vietnam war veteran so that was slightly different travel my father was a korean war veteran and i think i think my uncle was drafted towards the end of world war ii although i'm not totally sure about that um so aside from that i think i was one of the first i, I am the first I think I'm the only one to have a PhD in my family. Um, so that was part of it as well. But none of my cousins or sisters really had this idea of 
wanting to get out <laughs> the way <laughs> I did. How did how did your family view that wanting to get out thing you had that itch? Well, I mean, I wasn't particularly sensitive to the effects on them. I was sort of a brash mm -hmm. young man. Um, but I guess I've grown to see that um, in some ways they admire it, even though they miss me. And I think, you know, I've heard, I remember a couple of comments that my father and mother made that, you know, it sort of demonstrated to them what they may have seen already. I don't know how they saw this when I was a young tyke, but, you know, that I would, I would be able to, I would always kind of pursue what I wanted. And that made them feel, you know, fulfilled, I think, uh, to, to have brought me to a place where I had that clarity and to provide what they could in terms of support to make that happen. Okay. This question uh, is regarding the current pandemic with COVID-19. Mm. How do you think your experiences, it could come from childhood, come from adolescence, it could come from when you were on your academic migration or like on your bike journey in, in Europe. How do you think these experiences affect how you are reacting to what's happening right now in today's world? the pandemic oh well i mean it's it's hard to say because it seems so extraordinary and so strange i mean everyone says it's strange times right i, I mean mm -hmm. i think this is outside the experience of everyone alive today i've, I've thought about my my grandparents you know who were alive during 1918 and the flu epidemic yeah. and what they might have experienced they didn't talk about that very much on the other hand you know and i had the thought that um, in some ways, you know, I'm glad that my parents died before they, you know, had to suffer through this. My father spent the last year and a half of his life in assisted living, and you know, it would have been it would have been horrible to think that you know the disease might have ravaged through there as we've seen it happen in other places. It, it's um, it's 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 very real and heartrending to imagine what people there are going through and what their families are going through. Um, so, you know, in some ways it's completely extraordinary. Um, and, you know, I also think about what this is gonna mean to my own children who are mm -hmm. 15 and 12 right now. It's gonna be a major historical event in their imagination. You know, the way landing on the moon or 9-11 or these sort of, you know, emblazoned moments are for those who were, you know, alive when I was alive. Um, but I mean, to answer your question more specifically, I don't know. I, I you know, this this is sort of without a whole lot of foundation, but I feel like I've gotten through a lot in my life uh, and, and you know, been able to do a lot of things and figure things out for myself. And, um, you know, I, I, uh, I'm fairly optimistic, I think, and I'd like to get things done. If the clock on the wall is not showing the right time, I don't call a janitor. <laughs> I just climb on it. Share and fix it, man. So, um, you know, in some ways, I feel like uh, even though this is really overwhelming and, and bizarre, I'm going to get through it, goddammit. So, just hope, you know, it all goes as I hope it does. We'll figure it out one way or another. That's the attitude to have. I have one last question, and then I'm going to open so you can ask me questions if you have after. Uh, what is your favorite childhood movie or book and why? Mm. Well, let's see. Movies, uh, you know, that would get rather bizarre. I didn't have access. You know, when I was a kid, 
most movies that you would see would be these ones that were programmed by broadcasters on Tuesday or Thursday. You know, <laughs> I, I watch tons of television, you know. I try to, to argue with my kids about getting off their screens, but, you know, they, they have, like, all the advantages of television and none of the disadvantages. If you watch television, they would put these boring, horrible movies on in the evening, and you could barely stand to watch them, and often didn't because they were so boring. So I saw a lot of those. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, uh, I do remember more vividly a few books. Um, I, I really um, was shaped, you know, fairly early on. Uh, I guess this was like in, in early high school when I read, uh, there's a series of novels by, about the ancient world, actually, by Mary Renault. Uh, one of the ones that got most success was called The Persian Boy. And it, it sort of, you know, is a fictionalized account of Alexander the Great and, uh, you know, his, his sort of dominance or growth into a, a military leader and his travels and leading of, of the Macedonian armies around the ancient world and what he experienced there. So that, you know, that kind of... Uh, uh, you know, romanticized view of the ancient world, I think, uh, sustained me a little bit as I started to do more serious study of the ancient world. So that was one moment. Um, let's see, what else? I don't know. Uh, I think that that's all I would say. There, there were some other movies. And, I, you know, I do, I did have a really um, intense period of, of, you know, trying to watch a lot of films, especially when I, when I first moved to D.C., which would have been in in 1983, really taking advantage of the of the cinema there. So I saw a lot of films. Francois Truffaut was a major influence, and Fassbinder, a German director, and just saw a lot of films from that period and really sort of wanted to lo- know more about films. Now, of course, I have kids, and they take over the TV and can't watch <laughs> anything at all. So. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Wakefield. Uh, do you okay. have any last questions for me before we end the podcast? Well, I mean, I'm interested in this sort of, you know, shock that you felt at Emery's bubble. Have, have you had enough of these interviews to start to see like it, it's not quite as bad as it seemed when you when you had that feeling? It isn't. I it 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 isn't as quite as bad as it seems. But I still want like want these deep conversations, and I feel like then they should be like at least like a platform at Emory or like other institutions like in the world where like these, what you told me in this interview and like a place where like students and professors could talk about these experiences. Cause mm. at school, everyone is like, at least in my, in my opinion, like what I've seen, like people are more focused on like with the clock, like getting out, getting out of there, like getting everything done, like paperwork and getting through classes and everything. And then what's, what's left like, we, we never really get to understand who the person next to us is mm-hmm. in a deep level, like in a personal level. And that's kind of what uh, humans in New York kind of does. It's like New York is such a big city with bustling people right. all the time. But like he interviews them and like takes like a story of them that people could relate to. And I'm sure people, our listeners would relate to your story today, Dr. Rickfield. And that's what I'm trying to get at is that we are all more similar than different. And there's stories that are universal in a sense. And that's, that's what I'm trying to get at. That's how I'm trying to like pop this bubble per se. Right. If there right. is a bubble. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, I, I think it goes beyond just Emory and beyond people your age. I, I think that's life in general. We try to make these connections. So I really appreciate your having done this and, and appreciate talking to you. Right. Thank you, Dr. Rickfield. And we are signing off now.